Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the LSE public event this evening. I am Grace Lorden. I am the director of the Inclusion Initiative at the LSE and an associate professor at the LSE. Um, I want to acknowledge that Buckingham Palace sadly announced the death of Her Majesty the Queen at 6.30pm on Thursday, the 8th of September 2022, and the UK is now in a period of national mourning. Our thoughts at LSE remain with Her Majesty's family at this time. LSE has had connections to the royal family since its inception. The Queen's grandfather, George V, laid the foundation stone of the old building where my first office was in 1920, and many members of the LSE community remember fondly the Queen's visit to the school when she opened the new academic building in 2008, asking during a discussion of the credit crunch, how come nobody could foresee it? Throughout her lifetime, Her Majesty the Queen always took a keen interest in the economy and many other issues related to LSE's founding purpose and worked to understand the causes of things. As we are reflecting on the role she played in public life and think of her family and the many people whose lives she touched, including my own, we will continue to confront and debate the issues facing us. Open discussion and sharing of ideas will lead to the best hope of foreseeing future challenges and solutions in our rapidly changing world. And in that spirit, this evening, I have the privilege of welcoming one of the world's foremost thought leaders who manages always to convey the most complicated ideas in the most straightforward of languages and sees new insights in data that other people fail to recognize. He likely needs no introduction, so I will be brief. Um, Dan Pink, welcome to the virtual campus at the LSE. Dan is the author of five New York best-selling books, including his latest, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. If you haven't read it, I really recommend you buy it and read it. And if you have read it, I recommend you read it again. I've read it now twice, um, finishing it this morning in preparation for today's session. Daniel's books have won multiple awards, have been translated into 42 languages and have sold millions of copies around the world. And I'm absolutely looking forward to the discussion this evening. So welcome, Dan. Welcome to the virtual LSE. Grace, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm joining you uh, from a peculiar spot, uh, which is a hotel room in Las Vegas, which explains the spectral presence of the lipstick woman behind me. <laughs> that, that, that is not a common feature of my life. <laughs> momentary, it's a momentary feature of being in a hotel, a hotel room on the 55th floor in Las Vegas. Well, it sounds fabulous. And big congratulations to you on delivering such an innovative and awesome book. Again, Thanks. you know, it's no feat. And I think for people who are in the audience who might not have read it, can you give them the 101 lesson on why we should not live by the mantra, no regrets? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to start, Grace. I mean, one of the, we, we do have this mantra, and I think it's a mantra that, it's, it's hard to trace its origin, but I think that it's a mantra that began largely in the United States that we have exported uh, throughout the world. And it's a mantra that says you shouldn't have regrets. It's a mantra that says that you should always be positive, you should never be negative, you should always look forward and never look back. And um, that's a colossally bad idea. Uh, it is not a recipe for a life well lived, and it goes against a half century of science um, that has studied this profoundly misunderstood emotion of regret. Uh, what we know uh, for the, I mean, you know this, Grace, but for the last for the last 50, 60 years, uh, social psychologists have studied this emotion of regret. 
Neuroscientists have studied this emotion of regret, developmental psychologists, cognitive scientists, and um, they've come up with, I think, two really central points about this emotion. Number one is that regret makes us human. Number two is that regret makes us better. So let me unpack those both very, very quickly. Regret makes us human. It was really important to understand is that this stomach churning feeling uh, when we look backward and wish we had done something differently or wish we had done something in a different way or wish we hadn't done something. Um, that feeling is a ubiquitous part of the human experience. It, there's, there's research in social psychology showing that it is one of the most common emotions that human beings experience. It is arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings experience. Um, there's some interesting, I, I think the, the, the way that the, this research is, is pretty interesting is that, is that they recorded the everyday conversations of a large group, a large group of people from different parts of uh, American society and they transcribed the, these, these everyday conversations. And then they had a group of people who didn't know what these researchers were looking for, evaluate, read through these transcripts, and essentially kind of identify the emotions that were being expressed uh, in, these, um, in these everyday conversations. Now, this was a few years ago. Now we have software that actually does that in a really incredible way. But this, this was done by individuals marking the emotions being expressed in these everyday conversations. And what they found out is that the second most common emotion that people expressed in everyday conversation was regret. Uh, the most common negative emotion was regret. It is ubiquitous. Now, we also know from developmental psychology that there are people who actually don't, who actually abide by that philosophy that you were just mentioning. People who don't have regrets. They are five-year-olds. Five-year-olds don't experience regret. Why? Because their brains haven't developed the cognitive um, dexterity to do the incredible um, work that regret requires mentally. You have to go back to the past. You have to imagine uh, uh, making a different decision. Then you have to return to the future. And now suddenly the future is reconfigured because of the decisions you made in that imaginary. It's crazy. So five-year-olds don't experience regret. We know from neuroscience that uh, people with certain kinds of brain damage, people with certain kinds of neurodegenerative disorders, like certain kinds of uh, Huntington's, certain kinds of Parkinson's, don't experience regret because there's literally a physical neurological problem that impedes the processing of regret. We know that sociopaths don't experience regret. Um, and so, but, but if you're not a five-year-old or have brain damage or are a sociopath, you experience regret. Um, it is incredibly common. Now, I think there's a puzzle there that we want to try to resolve there. That, like one reason we don't, we want to say, I don't have any regrets. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't no regrets, no regrets. I never look back from, is that regret feels really crappy, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's an unpleasant emotion. So you have to, so there's a riddle here, which is how do, why would something so ubiquitous be, be so, un, why would something so unpleasant be so widespread? Why would this thing that makes us feel terrible be ubiquitous? There has to be a reason for that. And the answer is the second thing, which is that it's useful if we treat it right. Regret is incredibly useful if we treat it right. The problem is that we don't treat it right. Um, we tend to either ignore our regrets, bad idea, put our fingers in our ears when we experience regret, blah, 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 I don't feel anything. Or we wallow in our regrets, we ruminate in our regrets. That's a bad idea too. What we should be doing is confronting our regrets, looking them in the eye and doing something about them. And then once again, and, and, and you know, is, for me, it's important to, at, at, you know, talking to all these folks associated with LSE, that this is not some kind of, um, you know, wish that I'm 
announcing here. We have like mountains of evidence about this. Um, and so we have evidence that if you confront your regrets rather than elide them, it helps you become a better negotiator. It helps you become a better problem solver. It helps you avoid cognitive biases like escalation of commitment to a failing course of action. I mean, in fact, there's research out of LSE showing that very thing. There's a, there's a paper from Jillian Koo at, at LSE about uh, how uh, leaning into your regrets can help you avoid escalation of commitment to a, fa to a failing course of action. You, there's research showing it helps you make a better strategist. There's research showing it helps you find greater meaning. So um, regret makes us human. Everybody has regrets. Regret makes us better. If we treat it right, we can use it as an engine for progress. So that is the, that is the 101. You, go all, you, you can skip the rest of the regret class, students. <laughs> Fantastic. And let's go a little bit deeper on one part of the book, because you identify these four types of regrets. So you have foundation, moral, boldness, and connection. So can you explain what these are and the human sure. need for each of these types? Sure thing. So, so let me tell you that. Let, let me tell you how I got there. Okay. So, I, so I, I think it's really important. Um, um, you know, and, and Grace, you know, you know this as an academic um, that you know. I think it's really important. I think it's just good, good hygiene intellectually to show your work. Um, and so, I want to show my work and sort of let people know how I got to these claims. And so, um, one of the things that I did is a, I established something called the World Regret Survey. The World Regret Survey, you, it's, still, it's still up and, and working. Um, you can go to worldregretsurvey.com, uh, where I invited people from around the world to submit one of their biggest regrets. And we now have, it's incredible, we now have a database of, I think we're at 22,000 right now. We now have a database of 22,000 regrets from people in 109 countries, and quite a lot from the UK. Um, and what I found when I read through those regrets, um, and, I, and I didn't read through all 22,000, but I did read through the first 15,000, you know, one after another after another over, over, you know, over a long period, is that um, around the world, people seem to have exactly, as you say, the same four core regrets. And I think what's interesting about this and is that the way that scholars had actually looked at regret in the past, they, were, they really examined it by domain of life. So this is an education regret. This is a career regret. This is a, a health regret or a romance regret. And what I found is that there's something more interesting going on beneath the surface of those domains. So let me tell you about these four core regrets. One are foundation regrets, foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are regrets about small decisions early in life that accumulate to negative consequences later in life. So um, I spent too much and saved too little, very common one. And now I'm 42 years old and I'm broke. Um, a lot of regrets, uh, more than I expected, about people not working hard enough in school or university. Like, oh, I kind of didn't take school seriously. Um, I, I, if I went to university, I, I phoned it, you know, I phoned it in the whole time. Uh, and now I'm like, I'm paying the price for that. Like, I didn't pay the price immediately, but the accumulated price is actually very, very high. A lot of stuff about health, too. I didn't exercise, I didn't eat right, and now I'm, you know, 38 years old and I'm profoundly out of shape and it's going to take a lot of work to get back into shape. So those are foundation regrets. Uh, if only I'd done the work. Second category. You'll like this one, Grace. Boldness regrets. Boldness regrets. Boldness regrets are, uh, they're a good example of how these regrets spread domains. Let me give you an example about that. So I have um, uh, enormous, uh, both in the, a, lot, a, fair, a fair amount in the a fair amount in the UK, uh, a huge amount in the US of people. I'll give you an example of, of university people who graduated university, and their big one of their big regrets is that they didn't study abroad. They didn't study overseas. They didn't spend a term 
in another country studying. I was blown away by how common that regret is among university graduates. All right, so that's an education regret. Then I have lots and lots and lots and lots of regrets. These are from all over the world where someone says, oh, X years ago, there was someone I really liked. I was really interested in them romantically. I wanted to ask them out on a date, but I was too scared and I didn't. And now I regret it 10 years later, 20 years later. So that's a room 30 years later. I mean, I got people 40 years later. Um, that's I, hope, a romance. I, hope they, I hope they didn't have a spouse when they wrote that regret. That would, that would say something well, about the current state of their marriage. It does. Let's come back to that because <laughs> I think that's actually very telling. All right. So um, um, I want to come back to that because I think it's a pretty interesting. It's a, what you're saying is a, is, is a really interesting sort of line of inquiry there. So that's an that's a that's a um, um, a romance regret. Then I have people who wish they had started a business rather than stayed in a lackluster job. That's a career regret. But those regrets are to me are all the same. You're at a juncture in your life. You can play it safe or you can take the chance. You can play it safe or you can take the chance. And when people don't take the chance, not all the time, but lots of the time, they regret it. Um, so boldness regrets are if only I taken the chance. Boldness regrets. I mean, this is this is this is like in your wheelhouse, Grace. It's like yeah. basically people regret not thinking big, you yeah. know. Um, to borrow the title of your book, you know, people people uh, or or at some level, people at some are inclined to think big, but they often resist acting big. And when they don't do that, they regret it. Um, and it, what's, what's interesting, I think what's, what's interesting about that is that people are less focused on the outcomes than they are on the act itself, on the sort of this, taking that shot uh, itself. There are a lot of people who, there, there are people who took, a, who took a risk and it flopped and they regret doing that. But for every one of those, they're 40 or 50 who didn't take that shot and uh, there are 40 or 50 who didn't take that shot and regret it. And there are plenty of people, I mean, equal numbers of even more people who, who I didn't capture as many of these because of the nature of the question, but people who say, I took a shot, I tried this thing, it failed, but I'm glad I did it uh, because I learned something from it and now I have sort of scratched that itch and I don't, I'm not going to wonder what if. Okay, let me quickly come back to the other two. Moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. You can take the high road, you can take the low road. When people take the low road, not everybody, but a lot of everybody regrets it. So moral regrets are about things like marital infidelity, they're about bullying, they're about other kinds of you know, swindling or ignoble behavior. So moral regrets are if only I've done the right thing. And finally, we have connection regrets. Connection regrets are about relationships uh, that were intact or should have been intact and they come apart um, and they usually come apart in profoundly undramatic ways they come apart in you know slow um, almost invisible ways it's not like a you know to use a british example it's not like an edward albee play where, where people are you know it's not like what you know it's not like that the, you know uh who's afraid of virginia wolf where couples are like screaming at each other and throwing plates at each other it's it's a slower almost invisible drift. And what happens is that people want to reach out. And these relationships are, are well beyond romantic relationships. People want to reach out to an old friend, to a sibling, to a parent. They don't. They think it's going to be awkward. So they don't reach out. They think the other side is not going to care. So they don't reach out. And then the drift widens and sometimes it's too late. And so connection regrets are, if only I'd reached out. And so, um, so these are the four core regrets. And to add just a little fill up at the very end of it is that you know, these, these regrets, to my mind, are 
tell us something that when people tell you what they regret the most they're telling us what they value the most and i think that each of these regrets these four regrets offer a kind of a reverse image of what people truly want out of life so with foundation regrets what do we want out of life we want some stability we want you know a good life is not precarious we want to have some you know, the, the platform on which we stand, we don't want it to be wobbling around all the time. That's not a good life. Boldness regrets, I think, are about learning and growth um, and about, um, uh, about, I think, the fundamental human need to um, uh, explore, to have an adventure, to, to think big and act big, to try stuff. Uh, I think that the mor moral regrets are about goodness. Um, I, I, I mean, most of us agree that a good life a life well lived is also good in the in the broader sense that it's true it's just it's kind it's honest and then connection regrets are ultimately about love and again not only romantic love in fact in some ways not even mostly romantic love it's a fuller notion of love that that encompasses you know all the people in our lives from um especially people who are not you know um who are not familiar relations you know people who are people who are our friends, who are our colleagues, who are our neighbors, who are part of our, our community. One of the things that you see, at least from an American um, um, perspective, is, 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 is how much, you know, kind of national, sort of love there was for someone like the queen in a way that's, that's hard for, and we don't have that kind of figure in the US, but you get a sense that there is, there is that, that, there, that a lot of what's going on right now is an expression of of love and so that's really what we you know so so this this emotion that we try to avoid ends up revealing what we most want out of life some stability some growth and learning goodness and love so Dan, is there a regret that you would be willing to share with us this evening and tell us what that tells about you um I'll, I'll, well, I'll leave it to, I'll leave it to you and your audience to, to sort of analyze what it says about me, but I'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy to tell, I'm happy to, I'm happy to share. Yeah, I got lot, I have lots of regrets and, and a reason, a reason, in, indeed, Grace, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I had regrets. Um, you know, I, I wrote this book, um, I'm in my fifties and, you know, I had this moment a couple of years ago where. I suddenly realized that I had mileage on me, which is kind of sho a shocking thing that you know, some of you in the audience might have gotten to, some, many of you are gonna hit that rude awakening at some point. And I, and I say, oh my God, it's like, I got mileage on me. And, and I, I have plenty of, there's like a lot of space to look back in a way that really knocked me on my feet, knocked me on my heels. And so, um, and when I look back, I said, God, there were things I wish I had done. There were things I wish I hadn't done. And um, it bugged me. And what I found is that when I brought up these things with other people, instead of recoiling, people actually wanted to talk about it. That we have this the, we have this belief that nobody wants to talk about regret. And my experience is that everybody wants to talk about regret. And so, um, so I so I anyway, all what you said, I'm happy to discuss any of my you know a lot of my regrets. So I'll give you one one that, that that's just stuck with me for a long time and might offer some kind of. I'll tell you what I think I learned from it. I'll leave it to you guys to figure out if there's any broader takeaways from it, which is I have a lot of regrets about kindness, um, especially when I was younger. Um, in the database, we have lots and lots of regrets about bullying. And, um, and I, I was never a bully. Um, however, when I was much younger, I was in situations where people were not being treated well. People were not being treated fairly. People were being excluded. 
And it's not as if I didn't see it. I did. It's not as if I didn't know it was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. And I have to say that bugged me. That's bugged me for a very long time. Ten, you know, like I'm talking about things that are like literally 35 years ago. And it's still, I mean, even talking about it now, sort of, sort of, I get this kind of royal in my, my stomach. And, um, and so the question then is like, what do you do with that? Okay. What do you do with that? Now you can, I can either say no regrets, no regrets. Je ne regrette rien. I don't regret anything. Everything happens for a reason. It's all, you know, uh, and that's a bad idea. Uh, I think that leads to delusion. I could also say, oh my gosh. I am the worst person in the world. I acted in this sort of passive form of unkindness, and that reflects so poorly on my, my, on who I am as a person. And I'm just awful and horrible, and deserve widespread disdain and excoriation for the rest of my life. All right, that's a bad idea too. Or I can say, huh, that's interesting. This regret, this bad feeling I have, is telling me something. It's a signal, it's information, it's a knock at the door. It's a signal about what I value. And it turns out in a way that I might not have realized explicitly that maybe I value kindness more than I really realized. That, 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 that acting unkindly bothered me for a very long time, that's telling me something. It's, you know, if I think about all the decisions that I made yesterday or actually took yesterday, I don't even remember most of them. You know, or, or last week or last month or last year. But I have things that, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago that are still bugging me. That's a very strong signal. It's a signal about what I value. And then it also offers instruction. And it offers instruction about how I can do better in the future. And so what I've tried to do is be, I mean, I'm not saying I'm succeeded, but I, what I've tried to do is be more conscious of that and use that. Say, you know what? I value kindness. I value inclusion. I need to do things in my day-to-day -day life where I, if I see something like that, I need to speak up. If I see someone being excluded, I need to do what I can to bring them into the scrum. And so, um, so again, if we treat our regrets properly, they can clarify what we value and they can instruct us on how to do better in the future. Do you think though, Dan, would speak up in the workplace? So if you take your, your, your description from school and move it to the workplace in, in, in kind of big yeah. organizations, exclusion, being passed over for promotion, being passed over for pay increases, if somebody speaks up, will they regret it in the future, even if nothing is done? Even if um, nothing is done by the employer. That's it. Okay, so that's a that's a, that's a great question. Let's 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 stick on this for a moment because this there's a, there's a there's a there's some complexity with this particular issue that yeah. I think is really really revealing. So, so um so I do have a, an enormous number of regrets about that 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 literally use those use those words that you just used. All right. Um, and, and again, this is this is one of the advantages of having such an incredibly large sample of just voices out there. You know, twenty-two thousand separate voices and little mini sagas about people's lives. And so, you can go you can go in and you can you can um, um, uh, you can you can as we're reading through it's like I feel it's like oh god I think I'm hearing this phrase over and over again. And then I can go back in and search and see whether those intuitions are right. And one of the one of the phrases that comes up enormously is exactly what you're talking about, which is phrases like speak up, speaking up, spoken up. All right. And yeah. um, and so general, there are a few instances where people spoke up and wish they hadn't. 
because they got their their head handed to them. But those were those were relatively few. It was mostly, I mean, they were outnumbered probably eighty to one by people who or seventy to one by people who wish they had spoken up and had it. Now, what makes this complicated is that in the workplace, not speaking up, that problem is not only on the individuals. That is about being in an environment, a context, a culture where people feel like they don't have the psychological safety to speak up. No. And so one of the interesting things about regret is that regret requires agency. Regret is your fault. Regret is not disappointment. I can be disappointed if it's raining, but I can't regret that. All right? mm -hmm. I can regret not bringing an umbrella if I know that it's raining, but I can't regret the rain itself. I have no control over that. And this is something that's sort of, sort of in the middle. That, that inside of organizations, when it comes to speaking up, the onus is not only on the individual. The onus is on the organization and the leaders in that organization to create the conditions in which people feel free to speak up, in which yeah. people feel like they can speak up. So that one ends up being a little bit more complicated. But, but if I were to show like, you know, the uh, business leaders this, this stuff and, and see all these regrets about not speaking up, I think that they the, the big lesson, I think one of the big lessons for business leaders is that psychological safety is missing in most in many, 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 many organizations. And if you provide it, you're going to hear from people you didn't hear from. Typically, you're going to hear points of view you didn't hear from. You're going to get ideas that you might not have surfaced anyway. So it's not only the psychological safety is not only this kind of like nicey, nice political correct thing. It's actually incredibly, it's, it's, it's incredibly important for strategic reasons. Yeah. So just for, just for the audience, if you have any questions for Dan, do put them in the chat box and I will get to them soon. Um, when you talked about um, people having regrets over bullying, uh, it reminds me of people conforming. So people who aren't bullied, but who stand by while somebody's getting bullied, essentially they're conforming. And they're conforming because they feel that environmental pressure, just like the folk who aren't speaking up in organizations. Um, so I'm wondering, were you surprised how much that came up in your data or going into it, given everything that you've kind of researched in the past? What did it align with your expectations? I was surprised by the prevalence of, of bullying and regrets. And, yeah. and I do think that the I, I was surprised and, and I, I, I was surprised by the volume. Mm -hmm. um, I was surprised by um, the um, the international nature of it. So it was, it's not like an American problem or a British problem, but you know, we, got, we had reports about bullying from, uh, from you know, Eastern Europe, from Asia, from, from, from all over. I was surprised by the universality of it. Uh, I was also surprised by, um, by the ages of the people who had those bullying regrets. So I have, uh, so, so just, to, just to unpack things just a little bit, in the World Regrets Survey, um, I had people submit, a large, submit one of their big regrets they did it anonymously. All I wanted to know was their age, their gender identity, and their location. But I also gave people, I said, if you want to be contacted for a follow-up interview, feel free to leave your email address. But again, that was not required at all. Yeah. Uh, it was completely opting in, opting in. And so some people opted in to do that. Um, I, I, feel free to, to leave your email address if you'd like to be contacted for a follow-up interview. And extraordinary numbers of people way more than I expected opted in to be contacted. And so some people I followed up on with 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 interviews. It was during the pandemic. So the, all the interviews were on were on Zoom. Anyway, the point of all this is this. So I remember talking to this one, one woman. She was in her 50. She was 50. 
Um, she lived in uh, she lived in in the state of in the U.S. in the state of Kansas, which is like dead center in the United States. Or it's literally middle America. It's like in the middle of America. And she was she was 50, and she, her regret was about bullying somebody when she was 10 years old. And I interviewed her about this regret because she left her email address. And she began, in the course of the conversation, as she was recounting this, crying because she felt so ashamed of herself, so ashamed of her 10-year-old self. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty incredible how long these things stick with people because people know it's wrong. They know it's wrong. And most of us want to be good. And most of us, as I said before, feel crappy when we're not good. Mm. I think as well, though, the, the environment that she might have been in as, as a 10-year-old mightn't have been conducive to any better behavior. And when you're 10, it's hard to rationalize. And I like Mo Goddard's, I don't know if, you, if you've seen his, his idea that we should treat life as having seasons. And kind of when you look back at yourself as a child, maybe you're fundamentally very different to the person that you are now. So I hope she found comfort. I, ho I hope she found comfort after your interview. I don't know, but... <laughs> But I, I think your points are very on this are extraordinarily well taken. So, so part of it is, is so, so what's the remedy for that? So one, a remedy for that is something called self-compassion, which is to treat yourself to, to treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Um, yeah. So we have this tendency to when we screw up to just rip our you just our self-talk is brutal and cruel and we just rip ourselves to shreds and there's very little evidence that that's, a, that that's effective. So for her, I would encourage a, a bit of self-compassion. I think that your point is very well taken about, in this particular case, about conformity, because the underlying instance in this case was on a school bus. Um, and so she was literally, uh, she was literally in the same kind of enclosed space with her peers and her peers are watching. So there's a performative element to it as well. Yeah. Um, and so, um, um, uh, so I think conf I think conformity is uh, it, what's what's interesting is, is is how much people took doing that different slice at it is 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 people not always case but often will regret conformity. You have a lot of people in general. You have a lot of people talking about um, um, I felt like I was expected to become X, Y, or Z profession, yeah. even though that's not what I wanted to do, but I was conforming. Uh, everybody, no one in my hometown ever left, and I felt like I shouldn't leave either. Who am I to be so big in my britches to leave my hometown? And now I regret the other that. So it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, how much there's a, there's a um, sort of a baseline. There's like a, a note threaded through on a lot of these regrets about, about conformity. So um, I was kind of um, thinking about mulling over regrets as a way to identify values. So until I read your book, I used to get very frustrated when people would give lists and say, pick out your values. So, so what, what do you value? And you, you, you choose from the list and say, I'm not really sure, but I, I'll, I'll aim this way. And I thought about if you kind of look backwards and you can really identify with your regrets, thinking that's, this is what I value in life. So in, in, in the case of you mentioned inclusion, maybe I'm somebody who really values having an inclusive society. So all my actions should be aligned with that. Or if I agree taking over a high status job, maybe I'm somebody who wants to be really high status in society. So I should align my actions there. Is this something that you would be happy with readers taking away from the book? I think so. I mean, I, I do think that I, I would. Um, because I do think that one of the functions of regret is that it clarify it clarifies what we value, 
And what we need to do is we need to we need to listen to those signals. Again, like like if you think about all if we think about regret as a signal, it's a very strong signal. As I was saying before, you know, think about all the decisions we make. And most of them we don't remember, most of them we don't care about, but there are a few decisions and indecisions that stick with us for a long time. That's telling us something. I mean, it's basically like it's not even a knock at the door, it's like pounding on the door. And so and so, you know, you have a choice as an individual, like do you not say, I don't hear a knock at the door? No, nope, I don't hear anything. Uh, and not a, or you can dive under the sofa and say, I'm so terrified about answering the door that I don't want to deal with this. Or you can open the door and say, oh, what are you here to tell me? And, and so I, I think that it is a good way to, um, it is a good way to um, reveal our values and what we care about. So I think it's a good exercise. It reminds me of what you're talking about, Grace, reminds me a little bit like in, in especially in economics where where in, in economics, like economists don't believe in, in listening to people's stated preferences. Yeah. I love, they only want to talk about revealed preferences. All right, I, you know, I love, I love fruits and vegetables. Oh, let me see your grocery list for the last year. Wow, you've never bought a fruit or vegetable. Okay, so your revealed preference is different from your stated preference. Um, in this case, there's a, there's an anal there's a analogy here in that it's like, um, oh, I care about, I care about uh, uh, fairness and justice, but I've never felt any regret about failing on that. Like I've never, you know, whereas, whereas you're, 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 the things that you do regret are telling you something. So, so in, in a way it's a, I never thought about this either. It's a great question. It, 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 it operates in some ways as a revealed value preference uh, rather than what you're talking about in your example, Grace, of saying, here are a list of 36 values and circle the ones that are most, you know, meaningful to you. I mean, I think it's interesting. So I, I'm, I'm, even though I am an economist, I'm not convinced that just looking at what people do tells us about their, their fundamental preferences, because a lot of what you speak about in the book and to work from your regrets means taking actions that actually can be quite hard, perhaps. So one of the examples that you gave was somebody who's stuck in their job and they look back and say, oh, why did I, why did I plot along in this linear career? I don't even like the tasks. And they identify that as the regret. But what do they do now? What, what, what would you recommend? If I came to you and said, look, I've been at the LSE for 10 years. I realize I hate my job. I want to move, <laughs> but I, I feel invested. I feel paralyzed by the risk that I would have to take to jump. So I've identified my regret really cleanly. What would you, what would you think I should do? What next? Well, I mean, I think, okay. So, so, so I, I think that, so it's a great question too. I think what we should do is, I think what you should do is, is um, go through a process, all right? And so I think the beginning of the process is to actually reframe that regret internally, that sort of in, look inward first, all right? How do you actually think about that regret? How do you assess that regret? You can say, oh, I'm such an idiot. I screw up every decision. I can't believe I decided to go to the LSE. What a waste. I really wanted to be an opera singer. I really wanted to be a, you know, uh, a, a cricket star or whatever. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm such an idiot. I screw up everything, right? I want to, I want to, I want to arrest that kind of negative self-talk, um, because not because I'm a nice guy, but because it, there's no evidence that that lacerating self-talk is effective. It's not, we have this notion that talking to ourselves in harsh, in, in bitterly self-critical ways enhances performance. There's no evidence of that. 
Um, What there is evidence of is treating ourselves with what's known as self-compassion, which I mentioned a moment ago. Essentially, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that your regrets are part of the human condition and recognize it's a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. So I think that that offers people a sense of relief. Then what you can do, so you want to go inward first. Second thing that you can do is I think there's a very large, I think there's a, a, um, uh, a very strong argument for disclosure. Uh, disclosure is a form of unburdening. So if you truly felt that way, Grace, and you had it bottled up all the time, simply talking about it or, you know, with other people or even writing about it, relieves some of that pressure. There's a valve there and it's sort of, you know, yeah. uh, it, it, it's an unburdening. What's more, and I think this is actually one of the things that really I found persuasive in the research is that emotions by their very nature are emotions by their very nature are abstract that they're 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 blobby they're uh, they're there's like a, there's a, they're vaporous right and so that's one of the things that makes positive emotions feel so good but it's also, it's one of the things that makes negative emotions feel so bad and so when we have a negative emotion particularly this very common negative emotion about regret if we write about, if we talk about it or even there's evidence if we write about it for 15 minutes a day for, for three days, what we do there is a kind of a transmutation. We, we transmute the, this abstraction into something concrete. And when it's concrete, it's less, words are less menacing. So that begins the sense-making process. And finally, um, you got to draw a lesson from it. Um, and, and I think that we tend to be, you know, you know LSA, LSE is training people to become great problem solvers, and it, and it works. But when we solve our own problems, we stink. Uh, yeah. We're terrible at solving our own problems because we're too close to it. We're too enmeshed in the details. So I would encourage you know you know the sort of the imaginary grace here to do some self distancing and ask things like this: um, If your best friend came to you in this situation, what would she tell you to do? Ask advice. Um, 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 uh, if you if if you had to talk to the Grace of ten years from now, uh, Grace of twenty thirty two, what would she want you to do? Yeah. Um, and and so so inward, you treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Outward, uh, disclose to unburden and make sense of it, defang it, and then uh, forward, take a step back and draw a lesson from it. And then I, I think the the other thing I just think in general about behavior change is start small. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say, oh, I, I'm not sure I, I hate my job. I'm quitting, you know, today's Thursday. I'm quitting Friday morning and I'm moving to Mauritius <laughs> for the rest of my life. That's a bad idea. I would, you know, I would it Sounds good small. though. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I have, yeah. If you've, if you've ever been to Mauritius, it's not a bad place. I don't know why I came up with Mauritius. That's like of all the it's countries to spring to my head. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good pick. So we're getting loads of questions. So I'm going to get one more to you from me and then I go to the audience. So you've brought up emotions um, when you were speaking there. And I'm wondering for people who do look at their regrets and start scrutinizing them, how do they deal with the negative emotions that, that surface? So yeah, no, but, but, uh, distancing, yeah. putting yourself like a friend. 
Yeah, I think okay. So I, I think it's a, that's a, that's that's another really really good question. And and, and let, let me take let me take one step back. Um, negative emotions are important, and and I think that in some ways a lot of popular writing has sold people a bill of goods about positivity. Um, I think the evidence is very clear that we should have lots of positive positive emotions are great. Yeah. You want to have lots of positive emotions. You want to have way more positive emotions than negative emotions. But you need some negative emotions. Negative emotions are functional. They're adaptive. They're useful. Um, and it's really a question of what you do with that. So when you when you when you think about when you, when you feel that negative emotion, you have to say, oh, this is this is telling me something. The way that I look at this, the, the, the sort of the, the, the analytic frame that I look at this is this. So I'm going to go back to go back over 100 years to William James, the, 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 in some ways the founding parent of psychology as we know it. Um, psychology is a study of behavior. And, and he said, like, he had this famous phrase, sort of implied phrase, but he, said, he had this famous phrase that says, thinking is for doing. Why do human beings think? Why do we think? We think in order to do. Okay, so thinking is for doing. And so we, now the question is, what is feeling for? All right, what is feeling for? And we can say, feeling is for ignoring. That's a bad idea. It's not. Feelings are data. Feelings are, are information. Or we can say, feeling is for feeling. Feeling is simply, feeling is, our feelings are the only truth. That I should always trust my feelings. That feelings are the one, uh, the most accurate perception of the world. I think that's a bad idea too. I think that feeling is for thinking. Feeling is for thinking because thinking is for doing. And that what we should be doing is when we have a negative emotion is use that negativity, use that unpleasant feeling to say, wait a second, I'm, this is unpleasant. Why is this unpleasant? What is this telling me? Don't ignore it. Don't get bogged down by it. Now that's difficult. I want to recognize that. That's difficult because we have a tendency to, you know, we want to avoid that kind of unpleasantness. But if we take some of these steps we can use that negative feeling as a signal and then as an instrument to go forward. Let me give you an example of this more, 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 more. So there's a research, there's a lot of research, as you know, on negotiation. Um, and in, in part because researchers can give people like a common fact pattern, have them negotiate and then change the circumstances of the people or the instructions or whatever and find things from that. Okay, so um, um, what the, a group of researchers did, uh, uh, Adam Glinsky and some others, is they put people in a negotiation session. Then they ask, they ask them, I want you to think about what you regret in that negotiation. So instead of eliding this negative emotion, they're inviting it, all right? Yeah. I want, I'm commanding you to feel regret. I want you to focus on what, when, when they did that, people did better in the next negotiation. So what we have to do is reframe how we think of negative emotions, not as a character flaw, not as something that's debilitating, but as part of the human condition and as something that is telling us something. It's a signal. It's a, it's a signal. I don't want people to think too much about positive emotions. All right. If we think about, if we think too much about positive emotions or we write about positive emotions, we turn this abstract feeling into something concrete that makes those feelings less positive. If you have positive emotions, just luxuriate in them, bask in them. Don't think, you know, just go for it. Uh, but with negative emotions, you want to think about them. You want to use them as signals and, and as data. And what we also want to do is we want to just get past this idea that a good life is uniformly positive emotions. It's not. That is yeah. not a life well lived. A good, a life well lived has negative emotions because they're adaptive. You, I don't, nobody in this group 
would ever want to say uh, submit to say let's say let's say there's an operation out there you can submit to fear is a terrible emotion debilitating emotion not not always debilitating but it's a negative emotion do you want to have an operation that that on your brain that eliminates your your ability to feel fear i don't no <laughs> i don't you know why because i'm on the 55th floor of a of a hotel and if i smell smoke and i'm scared i'm going to get the hell out of here all right if i if i don't feel fear I'm going to die on the 55th floor here, right? Uh, grief is a is a function is an adaptive emotion. Why do we? I mean, th you know, you know, you you have this period in the UK of national mourning. Why do we feel grief? Why do we feel grief? We feel grief because we feel love, and yeah. so you extinguish grief, you extinguish love. So 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 all of which is to say is that negative emotions are part of the human experience. Negative emotions emotions are very important signals. What you should be doing is not ignoring them and not wallowing them, but thinking about them. And if you do that, negative emotions are extraordinarily instructive. And I think dealing with negative emotions should really be taught from very young in school, ideally on the curriculum as something the same way that we teach mathematics. Yeah. You know what? I totally agree with you because I think that implicitly we are teaching, there's a sort of an implicit instruction that if you have a negative emotion, you're flawed and something is wrong yeah. with you. And and so I think we need explicit instruction uh, to the opposite. I, I think you're seeing this, I don't know how, how it is in the UK. In the US right now, if you look at the numbers of uh, sort of mental health challenges, mental health woes, especially among adolescents, uh, teenagers and people in their you know late, late teens and early 20s, it is alarming. And I think part of it is, is that these young people experience negative emotions they feel sad they feel fear they feel um, maybe even a, a few prickles of shame um, they feel disappointed they feel regretful and they feel that because they're humans yeah. and they look around and they say wait a second how can that possibly be everybody else is so perfect there must be something wrong with me um, and so i'm with you 100 percent grace so Rose is asking a question, and I, I don't know which way this answer is going to go. Is regret more prevalent among women? And is regret a gendered experience? And do you see different type of regrets across men and women? Okay. Fantastic question. And, yeah. and I, wanted to get, I wanted to get at this with some research that I did. So I did a, um, I did a um, uh, along with the World Regret Survey, I did a public opinion survey of the U.S. population, uh, only U.S., uh, uh, where we asked people a whole bunch of questions about their attitudes about regret. And we did it, we did it a very, very large sample. So uh, a very, very large sample of, uh, for over nearly 4,500 um, uh, respondents. So we could make claims about, safe claims about demographic differences. And what I found is that the demographic differences, at least in the US, were not that great. In the US, there was a difference between regrets about um, the, the, the kind of regret about, uh, of men versus women. Uh, and what, what we found was that women were slightly more likely to have regrets about family and women and men were slightly more likely to have regrets about careers. But it wasn't it wasn't by big numbers. Um, I also see so, so a few things anecdotally um, in the um, in the because uh, I did a quick. So you, you have to take this with a grain of salt. So these 22,000 regrets, again, that's not a random sample. So I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable making like airtight demographic claims when it's not a random sample. But if you search the database and you search for things like marriage, marry, that kind of thing, 
And then you look at the gym. So I, from this, it, it seems like women have far more <laughs> regrets about marriage than men do. Um, <laughs> or at least they're more willing to report it. So I don't know. So take that with a grain of salt. There is other research. Um, I write about it very, like in one paragraph in the book. Um, and I'm, I'm spacing out on who did this research. There is some interesting, the one area is that there's some differences in, in, um, in sexual regrets. Um, so that to, to oversimplify, but not by much, uh, women tend to regret the people they slept with and men tend to regret the people they didn't sleep with. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and I'm not I even, I don't say that Running as a joke. Running with the stereotype. I mean, the, evidence is, the evidence is fairly consistent with that. In terms yeah. of the prevalence of regret on gender, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Um, it's a really interesting question. And I don't, to my knowledge, I'm not sure whether there, um, there is evidence of that. My hunch, and it's only a hunch, is that the, there would be no difference in the experience of regret, but there might be a difference in the willingness to talk about it. That's just okay. a hunch though. Yeah. That makes that, that makes sense. So Nihal is saying this is such a potent t theme and asking, this is a great question, is there any relationship between regret and procrastination that has been established at all? I, I, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, but uh, my guess is that there might be. Um, um, it, because what, you know, what, one of the things that we know about procrastination is that you know, at the, procrastination ultimately is an emotion regulation problem. It's not like a productivity problem. It's not a cognitive problem. It's a problem of emotional regulation. And so regret is also emotional regulation. So it, 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 could, be, it could be there. It could be that people are, um, there is some interest, there is some evidence that when, um, when people are um, trying to, when they anticipate their regrets, okay, so I want to anticipate my regrets, that sometimes we over anticipate what we're going to regret. And that can lead us to risk averse behavior. Um, and so, um, and so we procrastinate, we don't do something. We procrastination is by its nature and inaction, right? So we don't do something because we're over indexed on our fears of what's going to happen if we, if we do do something. Um, there is also, um, uh, again, one of my favorite examples of this is, um, has to do with, um, with uh, multiple choice tests. Uh, and whether you should switch your answer. Um, and so, um, so what the evidence shows is that if, you th if you're going along your test, you, got, you go to number seven, you think the answer is B, and then later in the test you say, wait a second, I think the answer to seven is C. Should you switch your answer? And the evidence is pretty clear that you should, that you're more likely to, that, that, that switching is generally, not in every case, but switching is generally a good idea. But people don't switch. Uh, and the reason they don't switch is that they can easily imagine switching from A to C and being wrong. Yeah. Uh, and so they don't act, which is a, a sort of a form of procrastination. Um, but they, um, they they have a harder time envisioning sticking with A and it being and regretting that being sticking with A and having it being the wrong answer. So uh, so, sometimes anticipated regret can get us not to act, and so there might be a connection between that and procrastination. So I guess it's a long-winded way, Grace, of saying, I don't know, but I have a guess <laughs> that there's probably some, there's some kind of, it's a great question. There's, uh, there's, some, there's probably some kind of connection uh, there uh, because regret, because procrastination um, is an emotional regu emotion regulation problem uh, and that there is evidence that we sometimes, in anticipating regrets, 
uh, over-indexed to the point where we anticipate so much regret that we fail to act at all. And there definitely seems to be a link in how we experience time, so trading off today for the future. And Edward has a linked question to this as well. So Edward's quite cynical, so, um, basically saying people might regret not working harder at university, but given the same situation again, he believes a lot would just repeat the same behaviour because they wouldn't put in the effort because people are fundamentally short-termists. And it's striking that a lot of the examples that you gave on health, yeah. on education, is about preferring today over over the long run. Absolutely. Foundation regrets are very much about... What's the name of that questionnaire again, Grace? Edward. Edward, yeah. I think Edward makes a great point. Um, and, um, and a lot of those foundation regrets are about short-term thinking uh, over, over long-term thinking. And this is another one where we can say... We, we have to, the other thing that regret makes us think about is where agency begins and where it ends. Uh, and, you know, I think that in certain cases that we can, one of the best solutions to say foundation regrets is to not only to rely on the agency of the individual, but to change the surrounding circumstances to prevent the very short-term thinking that Edward is talking about. Yeah. So let's <laughs> say that you want to, Let's say that you want, you know, uh, oh, my God, I ate crappy food and now I'm unhealthy. Um, let's, um, um, you know, small thing. Let's, you know, if you're working in an organ, let's replace vending machines with unhealthy food with uh, bowls of fresh fruit. Yeah. All right. So we're not relying on agency. Uh, people aren't getting enough exercise. OK, uh, let's um, let's uh, let's replace. Uh, let's stop subsidizing people's parking and. Um, and looking for ways to have satellite offices where people can walk to work. Yeah. Um, let's put a gym in our in our in our um, facility, and you know, do things to make it and make it free, and do things to make it easy for people to, to take those things. So so there is a um, um, so there is something. I think Edward. I think Edward is right. Um, foundation regrets are tricky. If you look at here in the United States, okay, I'll give you another example here in the United States. Um, we have, because of our, the way, the, the perverse way we fund higher education, uh, we rely on people borrowing, students borrowing huge amounts of money to pay for, for, for education. All right, so if I, if I talk to a 35-year-old who says, oh my God, I'm 35 years old, I've been working for 10 years, and I still haven't been able to save any money. All right, if you spend all of that on, you know, fancy restaurant, if you spent your money on fancy restaurant dinners and and you know cheap watches and trips to las vegas shame on you but if i hear that that person i'm the first in my family to go to university i had to borrow two hundred thousand dollars us in order to pay for that that's not totally on them uh to me that's a system problem yeah uh it's a it's a it's a system problem in the way that we finance higher education so but again i think the interesting thing about this is that regret forces us into these conversations about how much is the person, how much, how much, what do we have control over? What do we not have control over? How much of outcomes are the person and how much are the situation? And those are profoundly important questions about how we lead our lives, how we organize, uh, how we run organizations, how we organize a good society. And I think even within you as a person being honest about what part of it is just who you are. So if you're always a procrastinator, if you're always someone who's going to go to the pub, put the structures around yourself, like you say, to make sure that exactly. you don't lose it. So it's so that's the action that learns from the regret, which is which is fundamentally important, particularly for these foundational ones. I think. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We. I, I think our instinct. I mean, again, I mean, you know, our our, our instinct 
you know, especially in the West, is when we have a situation is to change the person. Um, yeah. And and sometimes that's a good idea, but we also want to think about the situation. How do we change the situation? How do we change the, you know, you know, I mean, you know, you guys have talked about this at, at length at LSE. How do you change the choice architecture? How do you change yeah. the environment? How do you change what the default setting is on a lot of these choices and things like that to, to, to actually steer around the, what Edward is talking about with, you know, people um, uh, thinking short, you know, basically it's in, you know, in behavioral economics it's called temporal discounting. People basically overvalue, overvalue what, what's going to happen in 10 minutes and undervalue what's going to happen in 10 years. So Belton is asking about regret versus success, John. Um, hi, Belton, who I know very well, actually. Do you feel people who hold on to regrets limit their ability to progress due to focusing on a past issue versus driving for change? Or does regret sometimes act as a driving factor to overcome past failures? Hmm. I think it depends on how you treat it. You know, like, do, do, you, do, you, do you use that regret? I mean, again, not to, not to sound glib, but do you use that regret as a, as a weight, W-A-G-H-T, or as a fuel? Um, and so, you know, if you, if, if you take that regret and, um, and uh, wallow in it, ruminate about it, use it to make universal attributions about who you are as a person, um, I think it complete, I think it's, it's, it's destructive. But if you use that and say, God, I really feel bad about this. Like, like, I can't, like, this is still bugging me a year later, five years later, 10 years later. What is that telling me? What is that telling me? Uh, and, and how do I make sense of that? And how do I extract lessons from it? This is in some reasons why, like, let's say, let's, let's take one of the seven deadly sins. All right. Let's take, you know, let's take, you know, let's take envy, right? Mm. You know, I think it's important for us to, when we feel envy, to evaluate that signal. I think envy can be incredibly destructive. And I think we could end up envying the wrong things. But if you're feeling envy, that's telling you something. It might be, if I envy Fred, you know, I gotta think, well, what is it about Fred that I envy? What, what, what is it there? And is that worth envying? And is that telling me something? And what is Fred doing? And, and so um, it really depends in this case on what you do with it. Yeah. Don't ignore it. Don't wallow in it. Confront it. Extract the lesson from it. Use I, that lesson to move forward. And if you identify the, the, the core of it, maybe it's Fred's job or Fred's lifestyle or some other aspect, you can figure out how you can get there too. Because I like that kind of reframing of jealousy and envy where it tells you about something that you probably want yourself in the core. And the fact that Fred has accomplished it means that you can you can get there too with, with some effort again. Yeah. And uh, the other thing about, about, about envy, if you want to stick on that for a second, is that... Um, it, we, we, t we tend to be sloppy comparison makers. So if I, if, I, um, if I say, oh, I envy Fred because Fred makes so much money. Fred has, Fred, and Fred has a really nice house and Fred is famous. Okay, let's say there's something like that. Uh, and I'm not, let's say Fred has a really nice house and Fred is, makes so much money. I can't believe how much money Fred makes and I'm so envious of that and I'm smarter than Fred, all right? Okay, so. I think you have to listen to that, but I also think you have to actually widen the aperture a little bit. It's like, okay, you're seeing that aspect of Fred, but maybe Fred's kids hate him. Maybe yeah. Fred, is, maybe Fred, you know, spouse resents him. Uh, maybe Fred is profoundly unhealthy physically. Maybe Fred has bad value, you know? So what we, what we tend to do is, I mean, this is going to sound totally cheesy, 
like American self-help here in a moment, but but it's a good line, which is that uh, from um, a guy, uh, I learned it from a guy named Robert Waldinger, who, who um, runs the Harvard study for um, uh, uh, basically this long-run longitudinal study at Harvard uh, that has examined, that he started examining people when they were 18, all the way through, started in 1938, all the way through their um, throughout their lives, including their descendants. It's the longest running longitudinal study of human flourishing. And uh, one of the things that he says, I mean, it's cheesy, but it's right, is that, you know, we, we, we tend to compare our insides to other people's outsides. Again, it sounds like something that you would say in kindergarten, but there's some truth in it. Uh, and so a lot of times envy results from comparing our insides. We know how we feel. We know our struggles. And but we don't know anybody else's struggles, so we're only so I'm comparing my internal struggles to Fred, whose life seems superficially perfect because he has a lot of money and a nice house. But I don't know Fred's insights. So you you've raised cheesy, and we've been talking for an hour. So my last question is going to be super cheesy, but I I, I really like asking people like you who've had lots of um, lots of success in their life. Given that you have been reflecting about regrets, if you were to go back to being twenty year old Dan. What advice would you give to 20-year-old Dan and why? Well, it's, that's another interesting question. I, I think that I think that 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 20-year-old me, if I were to give him advice, he probably wouldn't have listened uh, because he was kind of an ass who thought he knew everything. He had no so, regrets. Uh, so I'm, 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 recognizing, I'm, I'm recognizing the difficulty of the task. Um, what, I, what I would do is I would say um, uh, right now you don't uh, – so, so number one, care less about what people think. Yeah. Care less about what other people think. They're not thinking about you, dude. They're thinking about themselves. No one cares about you. No one. No one's. No one's watching you. No one's caring about you. No one's evaluating you all the time. They. They got their own deal. All right. So I, that's what. That's one thing I would say. The other thing that I would say is that um, over the course of your life, you might not realize this right now, but relationships are going to be way more important than you realize. Just in terms. Not. About, I'm not talking about like professionally or instrumentally. I'm just talking about in general. What gives your life meaning and wholeness? our relationships um, and and devote more time to that. Devote as much time to that, not or, or devote sufficient time to that and don't spend all your time investing in your 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 skills and your capabilities because a life well lived is going to be about the relationships that give it wholeness. And those relationships are going to give you, you know, going to allow you to learn and grow and become better at your craft, but they're also going to give your life wholeness. So I would focus I would focus forget about what other people think and focus on um, focus on building relationships and um, and also I guess the third thing, which since I'm a Trinitarian, is um, is to say um, you probably know a lot less than you th you do know a lot less than you think. So scrutinize your assumptions about everything far more rigorously. It's really great advice, and I, I like to say that you should hone critical thinking skills and scrutinize your own beliefs. And what you do, just like we do to everyone else who's around us, because we very rarely exactly. change our beliefs, but we think everybody else should change change theirs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. This, for me, Dan, this has been really amazing. There's so many questions that haven't um, yet been answered, so I'm sorry I didn't get to them. A lot of them are in the book, so I encourage people again to pick up a copy of The Power of Regret. Do come back to us when you're in London, Dan. We would love to host you in the. Yeah. See, absolutely would love it. And in the meantime, enjoy Las Vegas. It's been absolutely um, fantastic spending time with you. Thanks a lot, Grace. I really appreciate you doing this. Thanks to everybody for the for for taking the time and for the the really, really, really insightful questions.
Thanks, Dan. You're awesome. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.